You are listening to the Science of Nutrition. When you start down the road where belief in magic replaces evidence in science, you end up in a place you don't want to be. What's happening is that there's a globalization of illness occurring. The people are starting to eat like us and live like us and die like us. Your child will live a life 10 years younger than you because of the landscape of food that we've built around them. We live in a world shaped by food, and if we realize that, we can use food as a really powerful tool to shape the world differently. All right, so welcome everyone. This has been a uh, it's been a long hiatus in the Science of Nutrition podcast, but uh, I have what we would call in the industry a get, and it's Mr. Uh, Stefan Guiné, or should I say, Doctor Stefan Guiné, and with me is of course my trusty cohort, Carrie Dennett, who's now a registered dietitian. So congratulations, Carrie. Thank you. Do you want to start off? No, wait. You know what? I want to start off. Never mind. Doctor Guiné. I would really like to know about your whole journey, the start of everything. Where'd you come from? Where'd you go to school? What made you interested in things like nutrition and neurobiology and all that kind of stuff? Well, I've always been pretty interested in health and nutrition. I've always been physically active and given at least some consideration to, to food. Um, I've always been really interested in science and the natural world in general. And I was always out in my backyard looking at plants and bugs and things when I was a kid and trying to learn about the human body and nature. And uh, when I went to grad school, I went to the University of Washington for neurobiology. And I wanted to do research that would improve human health and well-being. That was my main goal. And I joined the lab of Al Espada who at the time was at the University of Washington, and he was studying a class of disorders called polyglutamine repeat disorders. And that's, uh, that's a class of neurodegenerative diseases. And we were studying, me in particular, he was studying a few of them in the lab. The most widely known is called Huntington's disease. Some people have heard of that. But we were studying an even more rare one called spinocerebellar ataxia type 7. And uh, it was interesting in a sense. We were doing a lot of molecular biology work. We were tinkering with genes and, and mice, and uh, and we were doing neurobiology. But it was not. I mean, let me put it this way: there were probably not that many more patients than there were researchers for that disease. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but I mean, it's it's a very uncommon disorder, and. The rationale is that you're going to discover something that applies to other things and will increase scientific knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, over time, I decided that I wanted to study something that was more relevant to more people and had a larger impact. Really, it's hard to think of anything more impactful than obesity in this country. Um, I was The other day, I was reading through a Surgeon General's report from, I think it was the mid-90s. I can't remember what the guy's name was at the time, the Surgeon General. 
I only know C. Everett Coop. Sa- that was probably Satcher. Satcher no. was that his name? Okay. <laughs> I'm embarrassed myself here. I can't remember <laughs> the guy's name. But anyway, I was, I'm reading this report, and he had this uh, this line in the Surgeon General's report on the ob- the obesity problem. This is the guy who coined the term obesity epidemic, and what he said, which was very prescient, was that obesity is poised to become a greater public health problem than smoking than cigarette smoking yeah yeah and i think that's come to pass i think it really has when you look at the latest research on the health impacts of obesity i think a lot of the observational research has really underestimated the impacts the health impacts of obesity um i think it contributes hugely to chronic disease in a variety of different ways. You know, most of the chronic diseases that we're really concerned with in, you know, the quote-unquote lifestyle diseases that we're really concerned with in the 21st century, obesity is one of the top contributors to, to most of those. So anyway, the point is I, I felt compelled to have a larger impact. And so I joined the lab of Mike Schwartz at the University of Washington. By that time, I had already gotten sucked into you know obesity and metabolism and I was really interested in this idea that seemed very revolutionary to me at the time that obesity that that body fatness was regulated this is a regulated process it's not a passive thing that's just due to you know haphazard or conscious decision-making processes what I didn't realize at the time was that that has been known for a long time in in that field that's been known for a very long time but uh, it was new to me and I was really excited about it and that's what Mike Schwartz was studying and so I went and worked in his lab uh, and did a postdoc for four years and I'm still just as fascinated by the subject obviously I learned a lot about it during that time Um, and I just always felt compelled to communicate what I was learning. The things that I found really interesting, I, I guess I was frequently learning about things that I felt were pretty important and that I felt had not been communicated in any useful form to the public previously. And so I felt compelled to fill that gap with my own writing. and. You're talking about Whole Health Source? Yeah, yeah, now? with my blog, okay, sorry, yeah. my blog Whole Health Source. And, I mean, not just that. I've written articles in other places, given talks, and and then also my peer-reviewed papers in the literature. I've interjected some of my own ideas. But, uh, and I think, I think that's been successful to some degree, although, you know, I've made some mistakes along the way. I think that was the impetus for my blog, too. I don't know about you, Kerry, but, like, I wanted to... Like, the things I was learning, I was like, this is just so cool, right? I, the world must know, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you start I a think, blog and yeah, start writing about that's it. that's right. I think it's that, and it's a personality type, too, as well, for me. I think part of it's just my personality. But exactly, that it's that feeling of, I'm learning about this. You know, I felt that I was pretty knowledgeable, but I just learned this amazing thing that I'd never heard about before. No one else seems to know about it, at least not in the public sphere. I'm going to put this out there and so that's it's a good feeling for me and it's been uh, really a, a fascinating journey you got anything 
I'm out. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> so speaking of fascinating, Gary, you might remember this. This was there was something that struck me when we were when we were taking our uh, the metabolism class with uh, Dr. Rosenfeld, and there was something. It was just it was one of the strangest experiments that I'd ever heard about, and it had to do with leptin and mice. I know right? what you're gonna say. Okay. <laughs> so uh, for those who don't know. So there are these mice that are like genetically engineered um, to become obese. And the way they do that, I think, is they remove a gene that produces leptin in the mouse, right? Now, some sort of mad scientist had the idea of sewing these mice, sewing like one of these leptin knockout mice to like a normal mouse, right? Artificially conjoining them to where they like share a circulatory system and everything like that. And as it turned out, the, the quote-unquote, the obese mouse, once it was conjoined with a normal mouse, um, ate less, lost weight, and essentially became normal. And so that got, when I was in class, I was thinking, okay, so leptin must be like the hormone, right? This is, this is the key to solving the obesity crisis, right, that you're talking about. And, Many people had that and, idea. Right? And I was thinking, like, why aren't pharmaceutical companies like all over this making some sort of synthetic leptin that you can inject and then obesity just disappears yeah right so why haven't what's the explanation for why pharmaceutical companies haven't you know made a killing producing leptin? yeah yeah i mean that's that's a great question so um right so the technique you're referring to is called parabiosis and it's it's really fascinating as you said, the OBOB leptin deficient mice, they lose weight when you parabiose them with another mouse. And the, the key thing about parabiosis is, it, is that only factors that have a long half-life can cross the, the uh, area where they're joined by a circulatory system. So glucose, fatty acids, insulin, things like that can have no impact. And so those experiments were started more than half a century ago and they knew a lot about leptin long before it was cloned in 1994 by uh, Friedman, Jeff Friedman and Rudy Leibel. But uh, anyway, the point is that, so Jeff Friedman, when he published the paper Cloning Leptin, and cloning by the way means they located the gene, that's what cloning means, they located the leptin gene in the genome and they figured out what the sequence was. So they pulled it out and they said, this is the nucleotide sequence in the DNA, this is the protein sequence, now we can make it artificially. He patented the sequence, Jeff Friedman did, when, when he published that paper. And there was a lot of drama surrounding that that I'm not gonna touch on. This, to many people, seemed like it could be the uh, the holy grail of obesity, like you said. We found the obesity gene. This is the thing that regulates yeah. body fatness, and now we're gonna cure obesity with this compound that's so, so influential. Um, and, so, okay, so first, the first thing they do is they go looking at lean and obese people. How much leptin do they have in their circulation? And they're expecting, okay, obese people aren't gonna have any leptin. They're leptin deficient, just like these mice. They're not going to have any leptin, and all we have to do is give them leptin, and we'll cure their obesity, right? 
Well, it turns out that obese, pe obese people have tons of leptin. They have way more leptin than lean people. And it kind of makes sense because leptin is secreted in proportion to the size of your fat stores. It's very tightly correlated with the size of your fat stores. And so that created a paradox. If this thing regulates fat mass and the more you have, the less you want it the less you want to eat, if it's negatively regulating fat mass, how could it be that they could have tremendous amounts of leptin and yet still be obese? And so the concept that's been advanced to explain that is leptin resistance. And so leptin resistance is the failure of leptin responsive circuits to respond to the leptin signal appropriately or to, the, to a sufficient degree. And there's a lot of evidence to support the leptin resistance concept um, in both animal models and humans. So in animal models, you can just inject leptin directly into the brain and you can say it doesn't do anything. Whereas if you give it to a lean animal, if you give leptin to a lean animal, you can literally, to a rodent, you can literally completely eliminate every trace of body fat in that animal. Really? Yeah. If just, I mean, elevate it a few fold and body fat will literally disappear completely. There will be no visible body fat in subcutaneous or the abdominal cavity of that animal. But, uh, but if you look in an obese animal, they have that same amount of leptin that would make a lean animal not have any visible fat and they have tons of fat. So there's been a lot that's been learned about leptin resistance and the mechanisms in the brain and a lot of things in the cell that have been identified, cellular factors, um, inflammation, endoplasmic reticulum stress, um, accumulation of lipid metabolites that have been shown to dampen that leptin signal in neurons in the brain. And in humans, they've been able to show that basically Obese people, because of this leptin resistance, they defend a higher level of body fat than a lean person. So to an obese person, they might have, I mean, easily three, four, five times as much fat as a lean person, but their brain basically acts as if they have a lean type body and will defend that fat against change similarly to how a lean person will. So it's like the brain's not hearing the leptin any, as, as well as a lean person's brain. And so the brain's maybe only hearing a third of the leptin. So it thinks you, doesn't think that you have excess fat mass. So uh, if you take an obese person, Rudy Leibel has shown this, and you have them lose weight, their brain activates what is literally a starvation response. It, all of the things that the brain does when a lean person starves gets activated in an obese person, even if they still have much more fat mass than a lean person would. So their hunger level goes up, their uh, energy levels go down, eventually their body temperature will go down, their uh, muscular efficiency will go up, which means for the same muscular contraction, they'll burn fewer calories. But here's the key thing that's really interesting. If you bring their leptin back up to the pre-weight loss level, it eliminates all of those responses, suggesting that really it, the leptin is the key signal 
that makes that happen. I will say that there are still a lot of mysteries about Lepton and things that, uh, not, I wouldn't say everything about body weight regulation is neatly explained by Lepton, and there are clearly other factors that are plugging into these same weight regulating pathways, such as insulin and amylin and a variety of other gut peptides. But I think, I think there are still some things to be learned about leptin, some fundamental disconnects that remain to be explained. So now it sounds like you're talking a little bit, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like you're talking about what might colloquially be known as like a set point. Yeah, exactly. All right, so I remember, you know, this was like years ago, I think I was, I was, I was kind of overweight, I was trying to lose some weight. And uh, I was talking with my mother about it. My, my mom was like, you just have a different set point than, than lean people or something like that. I was like, shut up, mom. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> all right. It's all about thermodynamics, right? So, and then, you know, after reading some of your papers, it's like the set point seems to be like a legitimate thing. Right? Yeah. It's not just something you just moms read and readers digest. And, but it's, it's like right. a legitimate scientific Well, it is, thing. but it's not inconsistent with thermodynamics. Sure. It, it influences your thermodynamics. It uh, nudges you in a certain direction or another. But I, I think that, you know, there are some nuances there. To, to just say it's a set point and leave it at that, I think glosses over some important nuances. And one of them is that to call it a point makes it sound very precise, but it's more of a range. So the way I like to think about it is as a, like a spring. So if you just stretch it a little bit, you're not going to get a lot of resistance. But the more you stretch it, the more resistance you get. And so, I, I don't know, the engineers in the audience can, can tell me whether or not that's an accurate description of the spring. But, but, but that's what I mean, is, is that if you, there's a certain range of weights, maybe with, you know, d depending on how you're built, maybe a few pounds over which your brain's not really going to notice. Your leptin's just changing a little bit, and it's just not actionable. So your appetite's not going to change, your you know, energy level, your metabolic rate, it's not really going to change. Your thyroid's not going to change. Um, but the further you deviate from that, the more pressure you're going to start getting from your so-called energy homeostasis system, which is that system I'm talking about that defends your body fatness. So if you, just hypothetically, if you go and lose five pounds, then maybe you'll feel a little hungrier at meals. Then if you lose 10 pounds, all of a sudden you're feeling a little lethargic, you lose 15 pounds, your thyroid hormone levels start to drop, and you're starting to feel cold, and, uh, you're thinking about food more, your, your food reward response is really kicking in, you're starting to obsess about food, you can't, you have a really hard time not picking out when you're around, you know, something that's tasty, calorie dense. And then the further you go away from your brain's preferred range, the more you're gonna engage stronger and stronger responses. And by the time you get to where you've lost 10 or 20% of your body weight in most people, you're going to have some very strong responses that are going to, first of all, cut down your calorie expenditure by hundreds of calories. Some of that is just because you're losing body mass. 
some of it is because your expenditure per body mass is going down because of these regulatory responses. And then you're going to be in a state that psychologically that's going to greatly favor increased food consumption. Anyway, okay, so the point, the point there, that's a long-winded way of saying that there's a range. Right. It's not a point, it's more of a range. Set point is shorthand. It's, it's kind of a simple way of, of saying something that's a little more complicated. But right. the other thing is that that range, in my opinion, depends strongly on factors besides just what your energy homeostasis system is doing. So that range is kind of the integrated output of several different functions that can influence, based on what your diet and lifestyle is, what your brain is defending. And it's been shown very clearly in rodent models, and I've done some of this research myself. You can take uh, mice, you can put them on an unhealthy, calorie-dense, fattening diet, and they'll rapidly become obese, or rats. And I just published a paper recently, just a couple weeks ago, where we studied this phenomenon. You can take those animals who are obese, who have been obese for months, and when I say months, that's a long time if you consider that they only live for two or three years. Yeah. So these animals had been obese for four months. We switched them back to a healthy diet for one month, and they lose all of their excess fat. Their hypothalamic changes go back to what they were. Um, I guess I haven't defined hypothalamus yet. That's the part of your brain that regulates body fatness. So all, those, all that leptin resistance goes away, and they become lean again very rapidly. Has there been any research on like humans where people have like, you know, to maybe oversimplify, to where people have altered that set point or have altered that range of where they maintain their kind of yeah. homeostasis? That's a really good question. I think there has been research that's suggestive. I can't point to anything that's as definitive as the rodent studies. In, in rodents, I would say there's really quite good evidence that they will defend different levels of body fatness depending on the diet that they're given. And I'll just briefly touch on that evidence before I get to the human stuff. You can, you can take an animal that's been made obese on one of these fattening diets and you can only let it eat a fraction of its former calories. You can make it lose fat by calorie restriction and it will lose fat, but as soon as you give it its diet back, the same diet, as long as you're keeping it on the same diet the whole time, it'll bounce right back when you stop restricting it. Whereas if you put it on a healthier diet, it will go down and defend a new weight and body fatness when it's eating as much as it wants. Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? So it will actively defend a different level of body fatness depending on the diet. So if you, the way you know it's defending is because you can overfeed or underfeed and it'll bounce back to the same level on those individual diets. But if you put it on a healthier diet, it won't bounce back, it just stays at the lower weight. So the point is that the defended level of fat mass depends on the dietary context. And we don't know exactly what the factors are that determine that, but, um, but that seems true in rodents. And so if you look in humans, there is, I would say, some strongly suggestive evidence that the palatability level of the diet can determine the level of body fatness that's defended. 
So there was some research from um, Michel Cabanac where he put people on these very bland liquid diets and unrestricted in calories and their calorie intake and body weight spontaneously dropped and he was measuring their level of hunger and he found that it wasn't going up. They were losing weight but they were not experiencing this normal hunger reaction to weight loss and I forgot to mention he had a control group that was calorie matched to that group so they were also reducing their calories to the exact same degree and they got hungrier and hungrier and hungrier as they lost weight and the people who lost weight on the really bland food did not get hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. Oh. They, it's almost like that was the weight that their brain slash body quote unquote wanted to be at yeah. and was naturally drifting toward. And so there's that evidence. There's also some evidence uh, from, uh, I forget the guy's first name, but his last name is Van Italy or Van Italy. He showed in uh, obese, hospitalized patients that placing them on a very bland diet caused a dramatic reduction in calorie intake and, and food intake. Let's see, what else? Yeah, there's also Eric Ravison's studies. He, uh, I think these are some of the most interesting studies in the obesity literature. Very simple, but I think very informative. He had people uh, in a metabolic ward setting, which is a setting where food intake is completely measured, completely controlled. They're living in a lab basically for a week. They were, so he mostly, typically metabolic ward studies, they have a metabolic kitchen, they're, produ they're preparing all the food very precisely, they're serving defined types of food, defined quantities, defined composition, etc. But the problem is that eliminates the free choice element. And so, he wanted to say, if we put people in a situation where they can choose whatever they want, however much they want, what are they going to do, and can we really measure their calorie intake? It was more, mostly a proof of principle. Can we really get an accurate measure of their calorie intake in a free choice setting, and also do these sophisticated metabolic measurements at the same time? And so he had these giant vending machines where they were just full of all kinds of food great variety of packaged food because he could really know exactly what was in the food by reading the labels. It was an easy way of knowing the nutritional composition. And so all these packaged foods and very highly palatable. They're like kind of uh, snack foods and desserts and packaged, uh, I can't remember everything that, that he was using, but it's, it's like pancakes and soda. It wasn't all junk food, but there was a lot of junk food there and high variety, always desserts and sweet fatty things available. Um, and it was available at all times at no cost. These people just had to walk to this room and grab it. They almost doubled their calorie intake over the course of the week, their daily calorie intake almost doubled in this situation. They were not asked to overeat. Nobody, it was not an overfeeding study. No one asked them to overeat. They absolutely gorged themselves and gained about five pounds of weight over the course of one week. And this was repeated in men, it was repeated in women. 
is repeated in uh, people of European descent, people of Native American descent. There were three separate studies on this and the finding was very consistent. Basically, when you give people access to a large variety of calorie-dense, highly palatable food, they will stuff their faces. <laughs> the average person will stuff his or her face I don't know how much of that has to do with the set point, but there is some decision-making process in the brain that causes calories to go way up. And I think yeah. that it's reasonable to hypothesize that some of that involves a set point mechanism or the, the energy homeostasis system because, because of the findings that reduced palatability and reduced food variety seem to be able to lower the set point. It would be logical to speculate that going in the other direction would increase the set point. And there's evidence for that from rodent studies. So again, I can't be certain that that involves a set point, but I think it's logical to speculate. And certainly, I mean, when you compare this, this series of studies to other overfeeding studies, it's remarkable and it's completely, it's fundamentally different because there are tons of overfeeding studies in the obesity literature and what they do is they give people some incentive to overeat. There's social pressure or there's money or they're inmates and they're you know, gonna right. get you know, parole or something. And even with that, it's really hard to overeat by even 50% of your calorie intake. Your body does not want that much excess calories. The average person, it's revolting, you become Right. Full, you're no, you become nauseous, you don't want to eat anymore, and it builds from day to day. These people, nobody even asked them to overeat, and they spontaneously almost doubled their calorie intake and sustained it for seven days. And actually, I interviewed Eric Ravison, the PI on this, and he said that they had one guy that they kept in there for two weeks just because it was so extraordinary, and he kept his calorie intake stayed at double the normal for those entire two weeks. He never stopped. I mean, this guy would have eaten himself to death. Wow. So something special is going on there, right. I think, that involves more than just, hey, this looks tasty, I'm gonna eat it. That's fascinating. I've never run across those studies. I'm gonna have to look them up. Yeah, sure. Have you so, seen those, Gary? You read a lot. I can, I can pass them on to you, but uh, the title of the second one is called it's called like effects of a cafeteria diet in man, or something like that. Spontaneous overfeeding on a cafeteria diet, something like that. And then you can find the other ones from that. Well, I'm curious. It seems like with that vending machine study, there's a couple things going on. On the one hand, you said that the foods were super palatable, which kind of goes to our reward hedonic circuit. But there was also quite a variety of food, yeah. which speaks to the issue of uh, of sensory specific satiety. Absolutely. It's not like you know there was two types of food, both super palatable, but maybe they would get tired of them. Yeah. Do you think that you know the reward part or the sensory specific satiety? I mean, is there any way to know which one of those might be more of an issue with our modern processed food supply, which gives us both? hyperpalatable foods and lots of variety available yeah. at all the time. I think they're both tremendously influential and I couldn't really say which one is more important but it's my opinion that in that situation both of those played a role because I mean you know one one thing that I like to think about to conceptualize this is a buffet 
you go to a buffet and I don't know about you guys but I tend to overeat pretty Absolutely. spectacularly at at a buffet sorry to interrupt have you That's read right. any like Brian Wansink yeah stuff yeah I uh, read mindless eating and it was like he was talking about this psychology which I'm sure you're gonna get into right now yeah but how like you go to a buffet you overeat like crazy yeah just because of the the novelty of all the foods that you can yeah. ingest at once that's right I believe Barbara and Edmund Rolls coined the term sensory specific satiety and uh, it's it's a huge impact because I mean you go to you go to a buffet and let's be honest buffet food it tastes fine but it's not it's not like the most palatable thing you've ever eaten right it's kind of ordinary food usually but it's really calorie dense and sweet and whatever but there's a tremendous variety of different foods and I think I think the variety effect is at a buffet is probably the number one reason why we overeat and it relates to a fundamental property of the human nervous system called habituation. Habituation is the simplest form of learning and it exists in some of our most ancient ancestors, um, our most ancient relatives, I should say, the jellyfish. Even am animals with the simplest, absolute simplest nervous systems habituate. And, and what habituation is, is the more you encounter a stimulus, the less you respond to it. So basically, if, if I encounter something for the first time, it's novel, it's really cool, I'm gonna pay a lot of attention to it. I'm gonna, I can learn a lot about that the first time I encounter it. But after I've seen it 10 times, it's kind of boring and maybe it's not really relevant, it, and so I stop paying attention. And that's, that's a fundamental property of I believe all nervous systems is habituation. If you if you take a sea slug, a plesia, which is what Eric Kandel did all his research on, he's like one of the neuroscience gods, you poke it and it retracts. You poke it again and it retracts a little bit less. And you keep poking it each time it retracts less and less. And that's that's habituation. It's the same thing we do with food. You sit down to the table and you taste the food and at first it's really compelling and then the more you taste it the less compelling it becomes and you can literally be satiated of that food and even of food in general and not want any more but then when something else comes along that has different sensory properties you want that and so that's that's also a big reason well okay I'll, I'll stick with the buffet analogy for right now so in the buffet, there's a million different sensory experiences to be had, and so you never really hit sensory-specific satiety, and the only thing that stops you, your stomach from exploding is eventually your satiety system throws the emergency brake after you're already you know, approaching the danger like, zone. I can't walk to the buffet anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Your, your body throws the emergency brake, but you can eat a tremendous amount of food before that happens. And if there was only one or two or three things, you would have reached the point of satiety much sooner because you would have habituated, your satiety system would have habituated to those foods sooner. I was just thinking in economic parlance, it's the law of diminishing returns. The first bite is the best, second bite pretty good, and then after that, you, your return on each one is not so great. 
Yeah, oh, I didn't absolutely. know we had an economist over here. <laughs> oh, I'm not. I just remember an undergrad, my economics professor, used beer as an analogy for that. Uh, <laughs> all right, so I want to know a little bit about ghrelin. Okay. All right, so ghrelin, as far as I know, it's a hormone that's secreted by the stomach, um, and it's supposed to stimulate feeding, right? But I've read one of your papers that says it appears that mice don't mice if you take mice that don't make ghrelin they appear to have essentially normal eating patterns so how important is ghrelin really yeah that's a really good question the real answer is i don't know <laughs> and i'm not sure anyone could really give a definitive answer to that but uh i think it's probably important i think it's probably relevant and you know w with these knockout animals knockout mice that are lacking a certain pathway or a certain protein a lot of times you get compensation, and these satiety and hunger systems are, are highly redundant in the body. I mean, there are, I don't know how many, like 10 or more satiety hormones that are released by the gut and the pancreas in various places and act in the brain. Ghrelin actually is, is very unique in, in that it seems to be the only hunger peptide that is a hormone so there are other peptides that cause hunger in the brain but ghrelin is the only counterpoint to the satiety peptides that promotes hunger although that that may not be true anymore but for a long time it was the only one yeah so as you said when you get rid of it but the problem is when you have an animal that develops goes through its entire development without a biological pathway it can sometimes compensate for that and so there are ways of getting out around that, like you can inhibit ghrelin uh, using drugs, you can block its receptors, and when you do that, you do find that ghrelin does seem to play a role in the development of hunger, and there are other ways you can address that. So, I mean, there, there are data pointing in both directions. But I would say, on balance, I believe it probably does play a role at this point. And particularly in the circadian rhythmicity of your, of your hunger. So what I mean by that is that ghrelin, so ghrelin has peaks and troughs during the day. And the, the, the place where it peaks is right before your habitual meal time. And so that's kind of interesting because, I mean, mealtime to a certain degree is arbitrary, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can decide that you're going to eat every day at 9 a.m. or at 11 a.m. or not even eat till 2 p.m. But whatever you decide your mealtime is and whatever it is habitually, that's what your ghrelin is going to increase prior to. And so ghrelin kind of... I guess enforces your habitual meal time would be a way to put it. Hmm. Would would be I think the strongest hypothesis that so, I'm aware of. So it's like we've stepped into one of Pavlov's experiments. Uh, in what sense? In classical conditioning. We condition ourselves to eat at a certain time. I guess you could view it that way. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you you do become conditioned to eat at a certain time, and it's I think it's more than just a psychological habit it becomes a physiological habit and it makes sense because your physiology has a very strong circadian element so if you look at 
any number of hormones, they have a circadian element. And basically what your body is doing is it's preparing to mount the appropriate response for the appropriate time of day. So if you're in the middle of the night, you're not really likely to eat. So your body's not putting its energy into preparing for food ingestion. And I, anecdotally, I can say that you know when I'm jet lagged and I try to eat at a time of day that would normally be, I would normally be sleeping, it's really uncomfortable. I don't really digest very well. I think your digestive system is not prepared as well as it would be for food during when it as it is during the day. And I think you could even extend that analogy to specific times of day that your digestive tract is really anticipating food more at certain times than others. And those are the times that correspond to your when your meals are entrained to. So you mentioned circadian a couple of times. Yeah. So explain a little bit Give me like a brief overview of what that is, because I've heard that before, but I've never really bothered to investigate investigate okay. that idea myself. Yeah, so circadian rhythm is basically the idea that we have different biological processes happening at different times of day. So the probably the simplest, most obvious circadian function would be the wake-sleep cycle. So we sleep at night, we are awake during the day. That's a circadian rhythm. And then there are many other circadian rhythms that are happening in the body at the same time. So while we sleep, our metabolic rate goes down and then it goes back up during the day. Our cortisol peaks for most people in the morning and it has a trough in the evening. Our melatonin peaks in the evening and early, and early in sleep and then it goes back down. So there, there are a variety of things happening physiologically and cellularly that track with the 24-hour daily cycle. And so those would be called components of your circadian rhythm. No, I've just been, since reading some of your papers, I've been doing a lot of thinking about to what extent we would need to inhibit uh, food reward and palatability in order to maybe lose weight in a sustainable way. You know, you talk about the bland liquid diet. Well, that's not something that's really sustainable for most people. And I think anybody who ever tried slim fast would know that to be mm -hmm. true. But on the other hand, in your most excellent TEDx talk, you talked about the percentage of, of meals that are eaten away from home at restaurants, and even you specifically noted the percentage at fast food restaurants. Now, I think any meal that's eaten in any restaurant is going to be engineered to some degree to be super palatable and really hit our reward systems. Now, I'm assuming there's a middle ground between restaurant meals that are engineered that way and bland liquid diets. Is there a point do you think we can comfortably settle at? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, to take a little step back before I answer your question, one of the things that's been really striking to me that's really been very informative for me through this process of thinking about food reward and interacting with people about it is seeing just how attached people are to the pleasure value of food and also to the 
their food habits, their individual food habits and preferences. And it's, it's really striking because, I mean, there's nothing nutritionally necessary about the particular diet that each person is attached to for the most part, you know, like you could eat the diet of, you know, someone in Yunnan province of China and probably have equivalent health, um, but it would be very different in a sensory manner, and but it would not be appealing to most people that grew up with the type of food that we grew up with and vice versa. So, but I, I just think that's really telling and informative that, that people are are so attached to food reward and to their food. I think it just goes to show how deeply ingrained food is in our psyche and in our emotions and motivations. And the other thing I want to say before I answer the question is that food reward is one tool and it's not the only tool that can be used to modify food intake and body fatness. So you know, if a person finds that it's really not working for them, there are other ways to, you know, skirt around that. And I think it is a really important factor, but it's not one that's necessarily going to be the easiest or sustainable, most sustainable path for every individual. Um, so anyway, to, to answer your question, yeah, I think th I think that there are a million different degrees of food reward and if you you know there are some things that are so viscerally compelling that it it's just is incredibly intense like uh, I can still remember this ice cream bar that I ate uh, it was like a year ago I almost never eat ice cream bars I rarely eat ice cream at all but this ice cream bar, I just decided, and you know, it wasn't even like a fancy one. I just went into a 7-Eleven and I was just in the mood. I was going to get an ice cream bar. And this thing was, it was like a big vanilla bar and it was dipped in chocolate and it had hazelnuts all over it. And it was just overwhelmingly delicious. And it, it was, it really made an imprint in my mind. And I would think about it when I walked by the 7-Eleven after that. It's like, man, I could get an ice cream bar right now. And I didn't. Fortunately, it wasn't compelling enough that it kept drawing me in there. But I think it's good to limit that type of food that's compelling to that degree. And I think it's very individual how, it's very individual what specific foods trigger that but I mean there's certainly a lot of commonality like the most commonly craved food in women is chocolate this has been studied and it's clearly it's the true. number one <laughs> and I mean chocolate's very compelling to most men as well I don't know that it's number one but it's very compelling to most men as well and I, re I still remember a steak I had about 10 years ago <laughs> Django's in Arlington Texas there's a New York strip came with mashed potatoes and veggies oh it was amazing it, it makes it smart right yes it makes it smart meat and potatoes that's very much a cliche <laughs> I love meat and potatoes man oh boy I uh, I grew potatoes I grow potatoes every year in my garden and this year my yields were really poor and I'm so disappointed because last year I mean we had potatoes for months it was amazing it was delicious little dense 
nice dense potatoes. Anyway, um, I think you know just avoiding the most hyper palatable foods will go a long way. And these are the things I I believe that the most hyper palatable foods are outside of what our brains are really wired to deal with. If you look in the wild, there's not really any wild foods you can get that are anything like ice cream, right? There's nothing that's as calorie dense and combination of concentrated fat and sugar. I mean, that's, it's hitting the, exactly, it's hitting the brain's high notes. It's like, that's, that's a really great combination for driving your reward centers wild. And, and it works. I mean, it's extremely compelling. If you look at uh, the NHANES, the uh, Nutrition, uh, sorry, National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys, <laughs> conducted by the CDC, I'm getting myself mixed up here, they, they did this survey on what are the most commonly consumed foods in the United States. Where, where are people getting the majority of their calories? And they broke it down into categories. And I mean, this is like a parade of food reward. The number one spot in adults and adolescents, and I think children as well, was grain-based desserts. So cake, cookie, etc., that sort of thing. Number one, that's the number one source of calories in the United States. I mean, people aren't eating that stuff for their health. I'm, I'm getting sidetracked here, but to get back to your question, I think there are various degrees. So avoiding the most hyperpalatable would be step one. Cooking your own food, and that would be step two. And I think that's really, really important. Go, Gary. I know you want to go. I know you want to go on a tirade about cooking your own food. No, I am just an advocate for home cooking, and you know, and so many people think, oh, I don't know how to cook. It's hard. Well, it doesn't have to be hard. You know, it's not hard to learn how to roast some vegetables, toss a salad, grill or roast, you know, some chicken breasts. You know, it's not. We're not talking Julia Child gourmet here. Yeah, that's right. Although I will say that, I mean, I I genuinely sympathize with the sentiment of not having time. I mean, I cook almost every day, but I mean, there have been major demographic changes in this country from the time when we ate almost all home-cooked food. And I mean, now we have nuclear families where both parents are working full-time jobs it's it's draining for time and energy and and processed food manufacturers have made these very compelling foods for us they're they taste good they're not expensive they are very easy to prepare um, you know you can buy a frozen pizza for example that would be eating at home but it's still processed food or you can go to a restaurant. It's so much cheaper than it ever has been in human history. Back in the 1930s, we spent 25% of our disposable income on food. Today, it's 10%. It's just gotten to the point where it's almost a negligible expense to have someone else prepare your food. And we have to work more than we used to as a family. And what? Let me. Let me refine that statement we have to we have salaried positions more than we used to as a family and uh, I think it's really important to cook food yourself but I think it is legitimately more challenging than it was 50 years ago
No, I agree. It is more challenging. And I think, you know, I always approach it with people is it's about progress. I mean, if somebody's eating almost exclusively restaurant foods or processed food, it's not like all of a sudden, boom, you're cooking from scratch every night. But I think any movement toward that direction is beneficial to health. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, in so many ways, I think that it's difficult to realize just how calorie dense most restaurant meals are for one thing. I mean, unless you've worked as a chef, which I haven't, but I have friends who are chefs, it's difficult to grasp just how much, how many calories they will add in the form of added fats and sweeteners and starches and things like that to restaurant foods in an effort to make them as compelling as possible to the diner. And, and we do that at home too, you know, we'll, you know I, I add olive oil to, I'll add some olive oil to my beans or my vegetables or whatever, but I mean the scale is just totally different. The scale is very different. Well, I think it was interesting, you were talking about NHANES, and if, if what I heard is correct, and I think it is, when they assess sodium intake for the population, they really base that off intake of processed foods. They don't even really count food added at home and cooking because that's negligible to the amount of sodium that is in prepared foods. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, it's my, my understanding is it's a relatively small percentage of total sodium intake. And interestingly, the number one contributor to sodium intake in the U.S. is bread. Yes, which I know shocks a lot of people. I found that as I moved away from processed foods years ago, I noticed things like salt, and a lot of breads feel taste actually very sweet to me. There's a lot of so-called healthy breads that I can't eat because of the mm. sugar content. I think your palate shifts when you get away from a lot of the hyper-processed, hyper-palatable foods. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, the interesting thing about bread is it doesn't really taste salty, right? It doesn't taste salty, but that's just how salt is part of the flavor of bread. If you don't have salt in your bread, it tastes weird. Well, I actually, I went to pastry school. Oh, it's probably been almost 10 years before I decided to go back to school and study nutrition. And I think one of the very few breads that doesn't have salt in it, there's a specific type of bread made in Tuscany, and they don't put salt in it because it is meant to be eaten with a salty cheese. Oh. So when you have the two together, you have the right balance. But yeah, I mean, salt... And the thing is with baking, salt is kind of part of the chemistry of food, too. It's not just a flavoring yeah. agent. It has you know, a chemical it, in baking, not necessarily in cooking. Baking is chemistry. Yeah, and salt is, it's a very compelling flavor for us. We are literally hardwired to seek salt, and a lot of other animals are too. And it's a limiting nutrient in many natural environments. But I think like, as with many other things, we're a little too compelled to seek it sometimes. But I think it is interesting. Salt is the only, I believe, as far as I know, it's the only micronutrient that we can taste and that we are hardwired to seek in our food. I had another question about uh, gastric distension, but I don't think it's important, so I'm just gonna. All right. I'm just gonna wrap it up. All right, Dr. St Stefan Guiana, thank you for joining us. You can find him at uh, wholehealthsource.com. Is that correct? Dot org. Dot org. Yeah. My apologies. That's all right. So look for him in the future. He's going to be, uh, 
He's going to be important, I think. Well, He's got some you. irons in the fire. That.